Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be touching on a topic related to virtual characters. That's right. This was a topic that was suggested to us by our listener, Peter, who is quite involved in virtual reality these days. And uh, he said, hey, you guys should do an episode on the Proteus effect. Now, the Proteus effect is something that will deal with virtual characters. So we're going to be touching on video games and virtual environments and stuff like that. But even if you're somebody who has no personal interest in video games or anything like that, I hope you stick around because it's an interesting topic nonetheless. And I think it will ultimately have some relevance to yourself in the society you live in, even if you're not somebody who's ever played games or plans on playing games. Yeah, because a lot of it does just hinge upon the idea of what happens when we put on this other face. And it could be you can you can take it to the virtual reality extremes to where there is a body that I am occupying and I'm walking around in it within a virtual uh, environment. Mm -hmm. There's the video game level of of a character that I have. I have picked out its face. I have picked out its uh, its clothing options, and now I am interacting with a digital world through it. Uh, but you can also take it down to the avatar level on uh, various message boards or email threads, etc. Yeah, totally. Now, if you're not familiar with how some of these video games work, where you create an avatar for yourself, this this is a thing that happens in a lot of games. There's a character creation process. Not all games. Some games. The character, I mean, some games you don't actually even play as a character. You don't embody a person-shaped thing. They're like puzzle games Mm -hmm. and stuff. But in games where you play as a character of some type, some of them it's just a fictional pre-established character, but sometimes you get to create that character yourself, right? And there's usually the beginning of the game, some type of process you go through to do that. And you get to like pick what they look like and maybe pick what some of their personality attributes are or what some of their skills are. Uh, A lot of games have a thing like this. Robert, do you have a favorite favorite character creation? Yeah, well, I'd say more of the more recent games, I, I've really enjoyed the, like the Skyrim and Fallout uh, character creation suites. I feel like you have a lot of a, a lot of uh, options there, and you can kind of create exactly the character you want. Uh, thinking back to the older games, I was a big fan of Icewind Dale and Icewind Dale 2. I have no idea what that is. Well, these, these were uh, turn-based Dungeons & Dragons uh, 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 role-playing games that you would play uh, online, like top-down view. and they had- so, so it was virtual. It was not like a... Pen and paper. No, not pen and paper. These were video games. Uh, they were it was the same engine as uh, Baldur's Gate and Torment uh, was another one. Though Torment had pre-created characters, but was still a fabulous game. But the creation suite, especially on on Icewind Dale two, as I remember, they had some really cool character art. You could you could select for the thumbnail. I believe through some minor tinkering, you could bring in outside art to serve as the thumbnail. Mm-hmm. And then you had a fair. They, these were not the most detailed of characters uh, on the screen, but you had a fair amount of choice in how they were put together as well. Uh Yeah. So one of the things we're going to be exploring today is what are the effects of coming to embody a character in a virtual environment? Mm -hmm. Does that change the player when you play as a character with certain physical or behavioral attributes? 
Now, Robert, my the main character creation process in video games I remember from when I was younger is not as interesting as yours. It was the wrestler creation mode in the Nintendo 64 game WWF Warzone, which I played <laughs> when I was in like sixth, seventh grade, I think. This was an N64 game? Yeah. And uh-huh. so it was this terrible blocky looking wrestling game uh, that had the WWF wrestlers in it, but you could create a custom wrestler. And so what my friends and I would always do is try to figure out how to create the most ridiculous looking <laughs> wrestler you possibly could uh-huh. that had like, I don't know, like, you know, legs that were five times wider than his head and wearing some crazy Easter egg costume. And it was it, it was mainly for laughs, but we did put a lot of time and energy into it. It was like we had to achieve peak ridiculousness. Huh. Well, the ultimate tragedy is, is that you were just a few years away from WWF WrestleMania 2000 and No Mercy which were both N64 wrestling games built on the uh, the AKI Virtual Pro Wrestling Engine from Japan. I don't know what that is. Oh, they, they were fabulous games, uh, just a fabulous engine uh, uh, for the game. Okay. Uh, but, you know, they th- these wrestling games have come a long ways. Uh, I, I was never into creating myself in them because it just felt weird to me, but I, I knew people that would do it. And nowadays you can – you can like bring in scans of your own face or the what? scans of virtually any existing wrestler or celebrity and create an, an amazingly lifelike, just an immaculate representation of that individual in these updated wrestling games. So you scan yourself in and you make a virtual copy of yourself mm-hmm. and then watch it get beat down by Stone Cold or, exactly. or yeah. whoever. Yeah, go through a table or bleed through its face. I mean, it's uh, the technology is amazing. And yet uh, at the same point, it, it's 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 even stranger to me <laughs> to, to try and imagine myself doing that, like creating a like a, a, a muscled avatar of myself. It just goes in there and just gets beat to a bloody pulp. Now, on one hand, you could look at that and say, okay, that's, you know, it's just people horsing around having fun playing some games, which is generally true. Yeah. And if you take that attitude, you're probably not going to, you know, think that there's anything super meaningful going on here. But on the other hand, it's really worth wondering how doing something like that could affect you and possibly change you. This is not a scenario that we are biologically adapted for in any way. Mm -hmm. I would say that there's no analogy in nature to creating a virtual environment in which you take on the characteristics of a created character and play within that virtual environment. I mean, I guess you could say that there are like rituals maybe where people sort of embody mythological characters that they play within the rituals, right? Yeah. But even then you're still bound to your body when you're doing that enactment. Yeah. I mean, the only other example I can think of is just uh, the mental mental time travel, chronesthesia, and, uh, and imagining various scenarios occurring right. and extrapolating how you might react in those situations. But then you're still pretty much bound to yourself yeah. Unless there's a particular example from, uh, you know, from from uh, from cultural history where someone is embodying in this process, they are embodying the aspect of a god 
but I am not aware of it if there is. Well, yeah, I, I would say the imagination yeah. is pretty much the only equivalent space. Mm-hmm. But the imagination is not physically enacted. When you do virtual environments, you have to physically perform movements within those virtual environments. You have to like, you know, you move a controller or something like that. It's a it's a challenging process that you have to engage with and that is more continuous than imagination, which tends to kind of come in and out, right? Yeah, the the just merely imagining something or reading a book is probably not going to update your body schema yeah. or change the way that you're you're thinking about your own body. Right. So you have to wonder does the idea of playing as a character different than yourself change yourself? Does going into a virtual environment and embodying some other type of being make you a different kind of being in reality? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So let's take a moment to talk about just the name of of the effect here, the Proteus effect. Yeah. So who who was Proteus? Well, uh, it would was seem... he, he was a character in the Matrix, right? Was he? Was there a Proteus no, in the I'm, Matrix? I'm just messing uh, with it's you. been a while since I've entered the Matrix. <laughs> uh, the, well, you know, the, the funny thing is, it would seem that that fate would have us return uh, once more to the world of undersea gods and humanoids. Because um, because what we have here is Proteus from Greek mythology, the old man of the sea. The old man of the sea. Yeah, it's essentially a, a primordial sea god. Okay. As with all things mythological, Proteus's exact identity and his role shifts over time. But that's quite fitting for Proteus in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. In uh, Giants, Monsters, and Dragons by Carol Rose, uh, an encyclopedia of fantastic uh, entities and creatures that I come back to again and again, she describes him as, quote, a primordial sea giant and, quote, a type of gigantic merman and guardian of the sea creatures. Whoa. And he served Poseidon, the sea god. He boasted uh, the gift of prophecy as well. But you had to catch him to get him to share his prophecies. Oh, wait, how do you catch him? Is that like rod and lure kind of catching? or <laughs> uh, Essentially, it's like you got to chase him down and fight him, wrestle him, uh, uh, overcome him that way. But the problem is that Proteus can change his shape. Oh. He can change it into something more monstrous to escape you, uh, you know, swifter to escape you, escape you, etc. Uh, the the secret though ends up being revealed by his daughter, uh, Eldothea, who uh, who lets a few select mortals know that you have to catch him while he's sleeping on the island of Pharos. Mm. Now, various other accounts describe him as not only a shape changer, but a being that is just constantly changing shape, as being essentially formless, which is fitting because this is a is a god of the sea. This makes him like the sea itself. He is liquid. He is ever-changing, difficult to predict. Kind of like those uh, identity masks in A Scanner Darkly. Right? Yeah. It's sort of like n- never really taking a solid form so you can't really identify somebody later. Yeah, or and, and would make him difficult to catch as well. And this is uh, where we get the word protean, which means tending or able to change frequently or easily. Uh, sometimes it's used just to just in the place of uh, versatile. But I, I think that sort of usage is kind of an insult to the gods. Yeah. Because you might say that, say, Sammy Hagar is versatile in that he can front a band and uh, run a tequila brand. But I think it's a bit much to say that, that Sammy Hagar is protean. Right. Though that's impressive. I can do neither of those things. No, I, I, I see what you're saying. Uh, like a, a 
Protean suggests more fundamental changes and and commitments to different natures, right? Whereas Versatile just says that you can you can multitask, you can do some different stuff. Yeah, Pro- Protean almost has a it, it I mean it has a, a sort of mad or holy vibe to it, right? Yeah, like something that is Protean is uh, is is difficult for us to master and grasp. And maybe the same is true of Sammy Hagar. I'm not sure. Certainly, it's hard to get him to uh, commit to a speed limit. We know that much. Robert, where did all this Sammy Hagar come from? I don't know. Uh, you just <laughs> listening to classic rock radio the other day, and I was just trying to think of well, who's who is a, an individual that's considered versatile in their interests. And I, I <laughs> and Sammy Hagar. Came well, no, I I initially thought of uh, of Maynard from Tool. Okay, uh, but then I thought, well, I don't know. Maybe Maynard is Protean. I'm not sure. He's a he's a He's he's a mysterious dude. Let's okay. go with Sammy Hagar instead. So more see, clear cut. You're saying Maynard from Tool. He does he does his alternative hard rock thing, and he does his I've got a vineyard, I make wine mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, and MMA. Oh, <laughs> yes. really? Yeah, he's he, into fighting. Yeah, yeah. He has he has multiple dimensions to his character. I had but, no idea. It all comes back to wrestling in the end. Yeah, May, maybe not all that protean, but uh, but certainly versatile. But today we're not talking about Sammy Hagar. We're not talking about Maynard. We're not even really talking about Greek shapeshifters. We're talking about uh, the Internet, uh, video games, virtual reality, and the idea that we get to pick and choose our form. And in doing so, maybe we get to choose our identity. All right. Well, we will take a quick break. And when we come back, we will get into the original research on the Proteus effect. All right. We're back. All right. Now, the short definition of the Proteus effect is that it is a name for the way that avatars, meaning virtual characters that we embody, it's a name for the way that avatars change our behavior in a virtual environment. So there was some original research on this subject between the years like 2007 and 2009 or so. That's when this first came out. And it was associated with the work of a researcher by the name of Nick Yee. And Nick Yee, uh, he, he was the scientist behind the original Proteus effect. And he, he summarized his original research in an article I read from 2009 where he pointed out some of the main features uh, that they had discovered in their first couple of studies on it. So Yee – points out to start with, this was sort of like the starting basis of the idea, that putting on certain garments and clothing and uniforms has been shown to change people's behavior. For example, there are these experiments that show that when you dress subjects in black uniforms, they behave more aggressively than when you dress them in white uniforms. And experiments like these show that to some extent our behavior is influenced by visual self-perception. We act out the parts people would expect us to act out based on how we look. And I think this is probably the same kind of research that informs or at least partially informs the old business idea that you should dress for the job you want, not the job you have, right? Yeah, dress for success. Right. Now, I think that part of that advice is based on the reasoning that dressing that way will influence the people who have the power to hire or promote you, right? That you want to look the part, and so you're trying to influence others. But there's another side of that, that dressing for the job you want is also an influence on the self. It can also be a beneficial alteration of self-perception. If you dress like someone with a certain job, you'll probably find yourself behaving and performing more like someone who belongs in that job. You put the costume on, and the costume helps you get into character. 
But what this research shows uh, with the way enclosed cognition changes us is that the costume tends to get you into character whether you mean to get into character or not. Now, we've touched on enclosed cognition on the show in the past. Uh, cognitive uh, psychologist uh, Hejo Adam and Adam Galinsky uh, from Northwestern University coined the term. Mm-hmm. One of the most famous examples is uh, the use of, say, a lab coat. Right. Uh, what happens when you wear a lab coat and maybe carry a clipboard around? Uh, well, th- they found that uh, the, the effect would work. You would feel like, smarter or more uh, you know, in control of your doctor status here, uh, if, but only if you wore the coat and were aware of the symbolic meaning. So you actually you have to know what it's about, what it represents, and you actually have to essentially make it a part of your body by covering yourself in it. Yeah, I would say that essentially the way this works is that you're performing according to stereotypes. Yeah. But you have to be aware of the stereotypes to perform according to them, right? Right. And then according to Galinsky as well, we don't just think with our brains but with our bodies. And our thought processes are based on physical, quote, physical experiences that set off associated abstract concepts. Yeah, I think – I mean this might sound kind of silly – But I think about the way that wearing a suit jacket changes the way I behave. I think sometimes it does. Mm -hmm. And I very much associate it literally with the way my shoulders and my arms feel. Mm -hmm. When I put on a suit jacket, I feel the tension in the way the jacket constrains the movements of my shoulders – or n- not necessarily constrains them, but you know, you, you feel, you can feel the jacket that's shaped like that, the suit jacket, and it actually does influence, I think, probably the way I talk, probably to some extent the way I react to people, whether I'm more likely to shake somebody's hand. I mean, obviously there's no way to, to, to fully test this in a controlled way, but I strongly suspect that it changes my behavior, and it changes my behavior through a constant attenuated awareness of what my body feels like in that piece of clothing. So you're not you're not only dressing like Business Joe, you become Business Joe. You know, Business Joe is different than a lot of other Business Joes <laughs> because the suit jackets I wear are are not like cool business jackets. They're more like old 70s jackets I got from my dad. Okay. Now, I think we do need to be careful with this kind of research because I think it's very easy to interpret it in an overly determinative way. For example, I was I was wondering, okay, are there studies that have found the opposite, that have found that this whole, you know, like wearing a black uniform doesn't actually change the way you behave compared to wearing some other colored uniform? And yeah, there there are studies going the opposite way, not necessarily that undercut the original findings, but at least that showed that the effect is obviously not the same in all contexts. For example, the research has been applied to uniform colors in professional sports, and I found a 2010 study that found no correlation at all between uniform color and aggression in professional hockey. Uh, This is the the basic argument was that like if you wore red. Right. If you wear like a red uniform or a black uniform or something, that you're going to be more aggressive than if you wear like a blue uniform or a green uniform. And this study found no correlation of that kind. It said it didn't matter what color uniform forms the hockey players were wearing. But like I said, it doesn't mean the original research is wrong, just that it probably applies differently in different contexts and depends on a lot of different variables. So but back to what was Yee's research to establish the idea of the Proteus effect? So in a series experiment starting with one published in 2007, Yee and colleagues tried to study whether the same perception embodiment, whether the same like embodiment of what others see you looking like that takes place with clothes and costumes 
also takes place with virtual costumes, meaning virtual characters. Does the virtual avatar that you choose to represent you in a video game or a virtual world change who you are and how you behave? Now, this question instantly makes me think back to um, uh, screens that I've seen of of Second Life. Uh, I I have not – I've never really used Second Life myself. But, you say never really. Does that mean you have a little bit? Well, what I did is that I attended a church service where the uh, the individual giving the sermon also did the sermon in Second Life. Whoa! And there were individuals gathered from uh, you know across the country and I guess beyond uh, in a virtual, if, if that's the right word for a Second Life environment, a virtual chapel uh, to share in the sermon. And they were attending in various forms. So some people were women, some people were male, some people were like animals or animal-human hybrids. Wow. So uh, I, that is, I instantly thought to that and thought, well, you know, I wonder what was going on in each of their minds. Like what did their chosen form say about their ideal identity, their experienced identity, etc.? I've never considered this question before. But what generally would the theologians of the various religions say about whether the rituals and sacraments of their religion are effective if performed virtually? So like if you, for example, receive Holy Communion in a Mm -hmm. Christian church or do a ritual in any religion, but do it not physically with your body but virtually in a virtual environment, does the sacrament work? Does it confer the same benefit? Huh. Well, that's a great question. I don't recall. I don't think this particular service uh, involved communion, uh, but maybe it did, and I just forgot about it. I, I imagine that, though, of course, would hinge upon your faith's you know particular beliefs about communion. Uh, for instance, uh, whether the um, uh, the bread actually becomes the body of Christ in your body, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But then again, if if you believe that, then why can't the the digital uh, communion wafer do the same thing somehow. I don't know. Well, it, it takes me back to the techno-religion question we asked. I don't know if we ever got into this question in our techno-religion episodes, but we did talk about the idea of whether a virtual simu- simulated prayer wheel is just as effective as a physical prayer wheel. That's right. Uh, yeah, because, of course, the, the, the traditional prayer wheels are essentially a machine that prays. Yeah. Like in, they, what, in what tradition is it? Buddhist or uh, Buddhist? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's a wheel that contains uh, uh, the prayer. It's usually like written down on a sheet of paper, and uh, or not a sheet of paper, but it's, it's a long string of paper coiled mm-hmm. up in there. And uh, by by turning it, you are turning the prayer. Uh, but how is that really that different from a digital machine doing the same thing? Yeah. Uh, it's just an it's a an advancement in the technology, but. M- but it doesn't seem like it's an advancement in the the basic idea. Well, I find that a very interesting question, and maybe we can come back to it in the future, but we are getting off subject. Okay, so we're looking at the first study by Yi and colleagues, and this was in 2007 in Human Communication Research. And what the researchers did in this study is compare subjects with a virtual avatar designed to be either attractive or unattractive. So they had these virtual avatars that were rated as attractive avatars or not very attractive ones. And then they had the subjects who embodied those avatars, who were paired with them, interact with a virtual stranger controlled by a lab assistant. And subjects with attractive virtual representation, so if you got a a very good-looking avatar, they behaved differently than those with unattractive ones. The virtually attractive players got closer to their conversation partners 
and they shared more personal information with these virtual strangers than people who had been given unattractive avatars to perform with. So that's kind of interesting because the attractiveness of your avatar doesn't change anything about you, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't change whether you are naturally a confident or attractive person, does it? Well, that's kind of the question here, right? Does, yeah. does taking on this virtual skin change your performance? Are you like fully sleeving yourself into this identity? I mean, I guess it wouldn't change what you physically look like. No. Well, it might over but... time, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't immediately change what you physically look like, but it might actually change the way your brain works. In another study, Yi found a similar thing. Uh, the researchers found that the height of a virtual character avatar influenced behavior in a virtual bargaining task. So they had people go into a virtual world, you go into like this video game environment, and you have to bargain with somebody. And people with taller avatars relative to their virtual conversation partner negotiated more aggressively than people who were given shorter avatars. Huh. So it's not that you are a taller person in real life, but if you're just given a taller character to play as in the virtual world, you act with more like aggressive bargaining tactics and confidence. Interesting. It, it becomes a situation where, again, humans have not evolved for this. We've evolved to deal with things in the real. Yeah. And when we, in, in deal, when we deal with things in the virtual world, we are still behaving as if we are beholding a physical presence. Yeah. But maybe that's not so surprising, right? Because this, what this is is that the avatar – is changing our behavior within the virtual world itself. You're given a character to perform as inside a virtual world. It changes how you behave in the virtual world. The big question would be, does this change carry over into the rest of your life? Like once you leave the garment of a digital avatar behind, are there lingering effects? So if you play a giant for an hour in a virtual environment or certainly you embody a giant for that amount of time, do you then leave your virtual session behaving as a giant? Yes. And in a 2009 study, Yi and colleagues investigated this. So they attempted to replicate the attractiveness study from the previous paper, right? So you'd get assigned an avatar that was either attractive or not attractive. And then they added a second stage to the experiment. They had a, an additional task outside the original virtual environment. So subjects were given an avatar, attractive or unattractive. Then they had to do the interaction task from the first study. Then after that, they left the virtual environment. And they were asked to participate in what they were told was a different study. It's like, do you want to do another study now? This one was about online dating. And the participants were asked to create a profile on a college dating site that had been set up. It was like a mock site, not a real one. And they were given photos of nine people of the gender they were interested in dating and then asked to pick two of the nine that they would most like to get to know better and get in contact with. And the study found that people who had been given attractive avatars chose more attractive partners on the dating site, and people who had been given less attractive avatars chose less attractive partners to contact on the dating site. And this would all seem to indicate that the attractiveness of the virtual character, the avatar they'd been given, was still shaping self-perception and confidence and behavior even after the players logged out and moved on to other things. 
Wow. So we, we are seeing the lingering effects then of the, the, the virtual body. We are, this is the Proteus effect yeah. in action. Well, I mean, it makes me wonder. So when I was in seventh grade or whatever, and I was creating ridiculous looking wrestlers with like huge legs and mm-hmm. stuff to get beat down by Stone Cold Steve Austin and my friends and I laughed and thought it was funny. Did this follow me? How was I different after I stopped playing the game or was, I mean, maybe it had no effect, but, did this change who I was when I was a little middle schooler? Huh? I don't know. I mean, I'm having to, to go back and, and think on my past uh, video game experience as well. I mean, because one one issue that comes up uh, specifically uh, deals with uh, the use of sexy characters, especially the sort of sexy female characters that you often encounter in uh, fantasy and sci-fi properties. You know, so just, maybe it's uh, they're scantily dressed, or mm-hmm. or we've all seen examples of this where the, uh, uh, the the male figure has more traditional armor, and the female figure has armor that makes no sense uh, within the the confines of an actual combat scenario. It's just all about revealing uh, the the feminine form. Yeah, totally. I remember before I was even aware, really, when I was much younger, when I was not really aware yet of feminist critiques of video games mm-hmm. or anything like that, I do remember seeing some of the character designs for female characters and thinking my younger self, like, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't think she would be very warm in that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, obviously, this is a big question in uh, video game design and stuff like that. The, the objectification, especially of female bodies in these games is a big cultural point to talk about. But the idea of the Proteus effect takes it a little bit farther, right? So it's not just an idea of how women's bodies are represented in the games and to what extent the way they're represented is empowering or disempowering, but it also has to do with how it affects us to play as these types of characters. Exactly. So I ran across a paper that deals with this, a 2012 paper titled The Embodiment of Sexualized Virtual Selves, The Proteus Effect and Experiences of Self-Objectification via Avatars. This is by Jesse Fox, Jeremy N. Balinson, and Liz Trecase. So in this study, they took the Proteus Effect and they studied it in the light of, of two other key factors. Okay. First of all, objectification theory. Mm-hmm. So this is the idea that uh, society treats women as depersonalized objects rather than individuals, uh, mere sexual bodies, and that women come to internalize this and learn to see and value themselves based on their physical appearance. And this is known as self-objectification. Okay. And then the other is rape myth acceptance. So simply put, uh, the acceptance of various myths concerning rape, most famously that dressing a certain way, going certain places, or behaving in certain ways means that the woman is, quote-unquote, asking for it. Right. It's like shifting the blame onto the victim of the rape. Yeah, yeah. It's it's victim-blaming, pure and simple. It's, it's repellent. Uh, and it's also truly damaging because, as the authors point out, past studies have found that women who accept these myths – don't take proper precautions against rape, and men who accept these myths are more likely to commit rape. Okay. So the researchers here, they went into their study with two predictions. First, they figured that the use of sexualized avatars would result in more body-related thoughts. And then second, participants who wear a sexualized avatar will express more rape myth acceptance, or, or RMA. Okay, so the idea here is if you are given an avatar in a virtual environment that uh, that has all these overtly sexualized features that's designed in a sexually objectified way, it's going to increase your self-objectification 
And it's going to increase the likelihood that you will accept these harmful myths about rape. Right. It, basically, one way of looking at it is, OK, so you have an image of a of a scantily clad uh, elven warrior. Mm-hmm. OK, that depiction of even a non-human technically female form, that is the at least partially the result of all of this, these, these cultural energies, these cultural practices and beliefs that are taking place and, uh, and sort of pressurizing this, uh, into form. And then if you embody that form, then you are subject to those, uh, those pressures as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. A lot of the way the Proteus effect seems to work is by, uh, importing of stereotyped behaviors. Yeah. So you, there are stereotypes about how a person who looks like X is supposed to behave. When you're given a character that looks like that, looks like X to embody, you begin behaving with those stereotypes in mind. Yeah, and and, so, and even subconsciously, it's not yeah. necessarily a, you know an overt uh, pra- uh, practice that's going on here. So this particular study involved 86 female participants from a West Coast university, ages 18 through 41. And uh, it was a reasonably racially diverse uh, group as well, 52% white, 24.4% Asian or Asian American, 7% black, 2.3% uh, Latino, 2.3% multiracial, and 5.8% other. Mm-hmm. And they were placed in a fully immersive VR rig. Participants had their photographs taken with a digital camera for a presumably unrelated study so that these could be worn as faces. Uh, Essentially, so they could give their virtual avatar their own face, and uh, and uh, they also allowed for others to uh, to wear an appropriately aged female face that was not their own. So here's how the the study went down: they were randomly assigned to uh, one of four conditions, either a sexualized version of themselves, so it's it's their face but the sexualized avatar body. Uh, a sexualized other, where they're just in a sexualized body, but it's just somebody else's face just on there. Just a random character. Mm-hmm. Non-sexualized self, so it's you, and you know, I guess you know, you're just dressed in normal virtual clothing. Mm-hmm. And then non-sexualized other, where you're a non-sexualized person with a different face. Okay. And then they had them interact with a male. Well, first of all, they had to look in a mirror uh, uh-huh. to sort of behold themselves, and then they interacted with a male character. Okay. The researchers found that, indeed, participants in sexualized conditions reported significantly more body-related thoughts. Uh, so the, the face itself had no effect there. As for rape myth acceptance, uh, judged by the use of Burt's RMA scale from 1980, uh, which uses a series of questions, uh, this is what they, they found out. Participants who wore the sexualized self expressed greater RMA than participants with a sexualized other. And there was no significant difference between the two non-sexualized uh, VR bodies. Well, that's a disturbing finding. Yeah. Uh, now, the authors in all this, they acknowledge that this was a small study, limited in scope. Uh, you know, it's just you know, less than 100 women from a, a single college. Uh, but they concluded from this that women can be affected negatively by the avatars they wear. And it can alter their behavior both on and offline. I think that would be an important thing to keep looking into and see if you can replicate because, I mean, there are tons of video games that, as we've said, have these overtly sexualized female bodies that characters or that players embody. And if it leads to something as truly harmful as acceptance of dangerous rape myths and victim blaming, this is something that could have a, a very strong effect on society and would be important to know. Yeah, and likewise, I'd, I would I would love to see more on the potential effects on male players as well. Yeah, uh, because the argument here is not that. 
that, that females are wired in a weird way and therefore are susceptible to this influence, susceptible to uh, like the sexual proteus effect. Uh, obviously, men would be susceptible to this too, even though the stereotypes that are involved in this particular study are very female-centric. But it comes back to the wrestling games, for instance, you know, like what happens if a male player is then putting their face on this body with this like ridiculous muscle man physique and then engaging in physical violence uh, with a, with another character? Like what what kind of protein effect would that have on the individual? Yeah, I think one thing that's not clear yet is how potentially strong this effect is. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are obviously going to be variables, no matter what, even if we don't know what they are yet, there are going to be variables that make this effect stronger or less strong to the extent that it's true at all. But I wonder how potentially strong is it? You know what I mean? Like yeah. at its most strong, will it have a little bit of an effect that we walk away with when we're done playing the game? Or are there ways that you could tweak and fine tune the gaming and, and avatar embodiment experience that could have radical or revolutionary self-editing types of effects? You know, like I, I'm almost wondering if there could be like avatar therapy, like you have a person who has harmful or self-destructive types of self-perception issues and that with a finely tweaked virtual environment and finely tweaked type of avatar, you could actually treat that sort of condition. Yeah, well, I mean, this wouldn't be the first time people have uh, proposed treating uh, or studied the, the, the treatment of uh, various ailments through virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been studies into the use of virtual reality to treat uh, nicotine addiction, for example, uh, or uh, post-traumatic stress uh, uh, disorders. So, uh, I mean, that's one of the things about virtual reality is that there's, there, are, there are a number of possibilities there beyond mere entertainment or distraction. And, uh, and we should probably uh, cover more of them on the show. I, f- I feel like we've... We haven't really touched on VR in, in quite a while. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing I've read along these lines is that I came across a study from 2014 applying the idea of the Proteus effect to the idea of exercise games. Hmm. So this was a study published by uh, Benjamin Lee et al. in Games for Health, Research, Development, and Clinical Applications. So this was a study about exercise games and how they can be used to try to encourage fitness behaviors in children. And the study was called We, Myself, and Size, (laughs) The Influence of Proteus Effect and Stereotype Threat on Overweight Children's Exercise Motivation and Behavior in Exer Games. So this is going to be one example of the kind of thing I was just talking about, right? Like taking advantage of the Proteus Effect to try to optimize people's performance and self-improvement behaviors. And the idea here is that if you can get children to exercise more based on exercise video games by using different types of avatars. So they tested 140 children between 9 and 12 years of age who were overweight. The dependent variables they tested were exercise attitudes of the children, mm-hmm. exercise motivation that was platform specific, specifically like how motivated are you to exercise on this Wii game you've got. And then finally, their performance inside the exercise game. And what they ultimately claimed to find was that overweight children who were given avatars that looked overweight performed worse compared to children who were given avatars of a normal body size. So if you're given an avatar that looks fitter, that looks healthier, you do better in all four of the dependent variable categories. Hmm. And they also tested stuff about stereotype threat, like whether giving these children negative stereotypes about exercise motivation in overweight children would hurt their performance. And uh, that also did seem to matter. So it 
turns out that you don't want to give children negative stereotypes about how they might perform in these video games if you want them to do better. But also just changing what the avatar they use looks like can really matter in how they do with exercise motivation and exercise performance in the games. Well, I've never played a, a fitness video game per se, but I can I can I can see where that would uh, that would have an effect. Uh, yet again, I want to ask the question I asked a minute ago. I wonder to whatever extent this effect is real, mm-hmm. how strong could it possibly be? Yeah, like is the most you could hope for that you'll get a slight improvement with this kind of thing, or could you tweak and keep testing these types of avatar changes until you find just the right formula? to really make a huge difference in the way people's brains work in these tasks. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Another interesting way that uh, I I found this being studied was the idea of performing stereotyped gendered behaviors Mm -hmm. in video games based on the gender of the avatar you've you've been given. So there are stereotypes about how certain genders should behave in video games. One would be that there's a stereotype that females would uh, like in a in a battle game where you're like dealing damage to enemies and then performing healing spells or something like that where you're healing yourself and healing others. This would be a massive multiplayer online deal where you are you are playing with other human players. Yeah. In the virtual realm. Yeah. So imagine a game like World of Warcraft okay. or something. You can you can like hack at the monster. You can heal yourself. And the stereotype would say that, well, male players are going to hack more and heal less and that female players are going to heal more and hack less to whatever that, that might not be true about real performance with gender identity at all. But that's like the stereotyped idea. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that Players, that difference doesn't appear so much in the actual gender identities of players, but it does appear more so with the virtual identities of characters. So whether or not the player is actually, actually identifies as male or female, the character that they're playing as in the game will conform to those stereotyped behaviors more. Like people playing as virtual female characters heal more. Interesting, huh? You know, I can't help but think again about uh, about Skyrim uh, as an example, uh, a possible example, or at least a, an area for study in all of this, where you have uh, these various uh, uh, you know, official expansions that came out that allowed your character to not only marry but to uh, adopt children and essentially grow a family in this game that's mostly about killing monsters and exploring. <laughs> uh, you know, to, to what extent does, uh, does the, the Proteus effect rear its, uh, its ugly head here as well? But indeed, could a game like Skyrim make you a better parent? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I, I come back to something that this is obviously not a very original idea. People have been asking this ever since the days of Doom and stuff in the 90s. But I wonder about the Proteus effect-like effects of first-person shooters. I admit I'm I'm not a big fan of many first-person shooters. The few that I like, are, you know, I like like the BioShock games because uh-huh. they've got interesting environments and storylines and stuff. But generally, I don't really like games where you just become a gun and mm-hmm. you're just walking around and all you are is a gun poking into the world and then that gun shoots. Well, there's something kind of holy and American about that, Joe. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I can't think of many games like that that I find very enjoyable. Uh, I I don't even bother with them generally now. But th- there's something about the embodiment as a gun that has kind of creepy Proteus effect implications. Oh well, I mean, we could we, we could go on an entire tangent there because on one hand, a gun is a tool that you hold in the real, and when you hold a gun 
or any tool in the reel, your body schema adjusts to its presence. And that tool or weapon, that gun, that sword, it becomes an extension of your body. Yeah, but in these games, it's all you see of your body. It's well, the <laughs> only part of you there is. We need to play some of the updated ones because like the latest Doom, your arms are in there because you're, you're ripping open the heads of demons and oh, stomping right. their faces and all sorts of, uh, of gory effects. <laughs> Now, at the same time that I think all this is interesting to wonder about, I don't want to over-speculate or oversell confidence on video game panic because right. I, I haven't seen any convincing evidence that like playing a first-person shooter makes you a killer or anything like that. But, uh, but it, it does make you think. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we have uh, a, a, few, uh, a few additional ideas I want to share and some closing thoughts. All right. We're back. So we were talking about violent video games and games where you become a gun or a murderous space marine or or you know any number of uh, of variations on this theme, and uh, I actually ran across a piece in Ian Magazine, uh, which we we frequently cite. They have a a, a wonderful uh, uh, storehouse of uh, of essays uh, about a variety of, of topics. Always thought provoking. Yeah, and uh, this was this one by Angela Buckingham. Uh, makes the case that murder should be illegal in virtual reality as well as, you know, our, our actual reality. And she uses the Proteus effect to make her case. Huh. Yeah. So I just wanted to read one quick quote from it. She says, in an immersive virtual environment, what will it be like to kill? Surely a terrifying, electrifying, even thrilling experience. But by embodying killers, we risk making violence more tantalizing, training ourselves in cruelty and normalizing aggression. The possibility of building fantasy worlds excites me as a filmmaker, but as a human being, I think we must be wary. No, I can hear all of the video game players out there in the audience saying like, no, don't limit my freedom. You know, <laughs> well, you'll, you'll say like, hold on. I've played lots of violent video games that are highly realistic and you do all kinds of fighting and destruction and killing, but I'm a perfectly peaceful person. I would never want to hurt anybody. Uh, you know, you want to use your, yourself as the anecdotal example against what she's arguing, but while I'm not saying I agree with her, I think we should take this idea seriously. Yeah. It's something to think about. It, that the idea that as games become more realistic, as the way we embody the characters we play in them becomes more immersive and more compelling, the Proteus effects that they produce could become stronger and stronger. Yeah, in in this uh, this essay, Buckingham references uh, the work of German philosopher Thomas Metzinger. And, uh, and and I looked up uh, an interview with him from 2016 in New Scientist. Uh, so I'm going to read this, but I, I want to drive home before I even read it that uh, Metzinger is not a Luddite. He is not opposed to VR. He's expressed excitement for the possibilities of VR, uh, but he is just saying, let us let us be cautious. Let us study what is happening as we proceed. Mm -hmm. He says, quote, there may be a risk of depersonalization where after an extended immersion in a virtual environment, your physical body may seem unreal to you. Fully immersive experiences have a bigger and more lasting impact on people's behavior and psychology. We know from the rubber hand illusion that our brains can be fooled into thinking that an inanimate rubber hand is our own. In VR environments, we can be fooled into thinking that we are our avatars. Consumers must understand that not all of the risks are known in advance. There may be a tiny percentage of the population that has a certain psychiatric vulnerability such that binging on VR may result in a prolonged psychotic episode, 
one can only speculate. Uh, yet again, I think that is an idea worth taking very seriously. Now, you can cite the examples, uh, the anecdotes of, you know, I and my friends, we, we play these video games, we play violent games, and we would never hurt a fly. We're, you know, we're very nice people. But you are there taking a small sample. When you apply these stimuli to vast populations, it's possible that some subset of the population could have very strong responses to them. I mean, certainly we see this with responses to other forms of media. Yeah. I mean, we know that some people are more vulnerable to cueing than others uh, and are more susceptible to influences from uh, from fiction, from movies, from yeah. music, etc. So I, I think it's interesting that he invokes the idea of the rubber hand illusion. Mm-hmm. If you've never seen this research, you, you should look up some of these videos on YouTube or even try it yourself where you can uh, you can put two hands on a table and one of them is your real hand and the other hand is a fake hand that's not actually yours. And somebody like maybe like strokes both hands or something long enough to give you – to get you to start imagining that the fake hand is also your real hand. Yeah. Then if you hit that fake hand with a hammer, people will freak out. <laughs> they For a second, they think it's their actual hand. Yeah. And this is another case where I'd love to to hear from listeners who have more experience with with VR video games, for instance, than we do. Uh, for instance, I know we're both fans of the the Alien Isolation game that came out a few years back. Oh yeah, and it's my understanding well, that one can play that in a virtual environment, which sounds absolutely terrifying. Because when I played that game, I felt like I was I was actually hiding in. Uh, in a locker waiting for the xenomorph to pass. I can't imagine playing it in a more uh, personal uh, virtual environment. That's an interesting game because as we talk about Proteus effects and the way they change our brains, lots of first-person games, as we were talking about earlier, are very – the character has a lot of agency and commits a lot of violence maybe and is very – I don't know, powerful and dominant when Mm -hmm. you're in doom or something and you become a gun and you're just killing all these monsters. In this Alien game and some other recent generation of horror games, you're very powerless. You have nothing you can really do to beat the monster. It's 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 about hiding and it's about cleverness and powerlessness and how to, to, to sneak away and survive. And it's a very different type of experience than a lot of other games of this generation. Yeah, and it really more uh, more fitting with the human condition. Yeah. Right. We don't succeed in life by being just uh, unstoppable killing machines. We we do it by by hiding in lockers and under tables <laughs> <laughs> and waiting till the danger passes and holding your breath. That's right. You got to hold your breath. It's always important. Now, I guess one thing we could say here is that we've sort of strayed a little bit from the core of the Proteus effect because we've gone on to just talk about how. Whole game mechanics, you know, everything yeah. about a video game can change the way we think, the things you have to do in it, the, you know, the type of visual experience it is. But to bring it back to the idea of the avatar itself, not what the game is, but the, the appearance and the, and the attributes of the character you play as and how that can shape your mind. I am brought to a question that goes outside of virtual environments or maybe goes actually to, to get back to the very place we started, the analogy between virtual environments and the only thing like them in in prehistory being being the imagination. Hmm. Robert, I'm curious if in your Dungeons and Dragons experiences, <laughs> you've ever seen anything like the Proteus effect. Like do the characters people create 
for a D&D session change the way the players themselves behave once even once they leave the game even when not explicitly role playing like does a person playing a lawful good paladin take a break to order pizza differently from that same player if they're currently running some chaotic evil beast that eats people <laughs> oh that's a great question um i i have to say i well first of all there are different types of players, and some get into the role-playing aspect of it more than others. Uh, the people I play with, I, I, none of them, none of them are using a chaotic evil character. Or like every everybody's character seems to be a partial extension of their own personality, mm-hmm. but maybe they're leaning into certain things more than others. Like uh, one player was more was very argumentative as his character but he's also a little bit argumentative in life right but maybe he was a little more argumentative when uh, when he was playing this character another plays a uh, a character that is um that is kind of gregarious and i could see sometimes i see him behaving in a gregarious way that seems like an extension of his character but it's kind of a chicken and egg scenario there right you know right. are they they're not necessarily acting out in a way that is different from themselves they're just sort of leaning into this uh this this version of who they already are well another way to think about that is that they could actually be using some version of the proteus effect a little bit different because it's not in virtual environments but mm-hmm. let's let's go back to a virtual environment okay i think people could use some version of the proteus effect to essentially intentionally edit their own personality you know, it's kind of hard to change who you are, but I would say that the most surefire way to make changes to yourself is not through thinking about them, but through doing things, right? If you yeah. want to change who you are, change your behavior first and your nature will follow. And, and to that point, I have to say that the people that I've played with, they tend to they tend to want to be noble. They want to they want to be the heroes of the story yeah. and and save the day. Which is great because that's the kind of game I want to play, uh, and uh, and DM. I I don't really want to DM a game where everyone is a is a marauding jerkwad, you right? Know? And they're just tearing apart towns because then that does begin to feel a little icky, I would think. But I, but then again, uh, I would love to hear from anyone out there who's been in a game like that. Have you have you been in a chaotic evil essentially like? Uh, like maybe there is a there's a Blood Meridian role playing module out there uh, <laughs> that people are really crazy about, and and you can tell me about it. But I, for one, would not want to run or participate in in the Blood the Cormac McCarthy Blood Meridian Dungeons and Dragons kind of campaign. But then everybody just fights over whether they get to be Judge Holden. Yeah, well, I mean, I would hope Judge Holden is, is an NPC, but yeah, yeah, well, but that's an idea. Like you just have a party of Judge Holdens rolling around. <laughs> Uh, being that awful. That sounds horrible. Yeah. Why would that be even fun? I don't know. I don't know. But it, okay, so I, I was talking about the idea of editing the self. Now, you can imagine to whatever extent the Proteus effect is real and that you could exploit it to intentionally edit your own personality in a direction of your choosing, right? Ah. So you could say like, what if I want to be a, a character more like X? You could 
intentionally seek out virtual environments where you have to play as a character who has those attributes you're seeking, essentially you'd be virtually faking it till you make it. You'd be enacting the behavior to shape yourself in the real world as a byproduct. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Again, we get back to the idea of VR therapy. But, you know, to allude uh, to another episode we've done before, do you think there might be a Proteus uh, effect in place with uh, the game of Werewolf or Mafia. Oh, I wonder, is, is does that, does playing that game, uh, again, we're getting a little bit off of the core of the Proteus effect having to do with avatars and getting mm-hmm. more into like game mechanics and behavior. But yeah, uh, that, uh, does it train you to be a liar? Like if you play mm-hmm. Werewolf a lot, does it make you a less honest person? Yeah, or just a, a paranoid and judgmental person. Oh, yeah. I want to offer one more weird take. See what you think about this. Maybe this is a terrible take. All right. Though I also think I can't be the first person to suggest this, so I'm sure other people have written about this. Social media, it, we've been talking about MMORPGs, massive multiple, multiplayer online RPGs. I would say social media today is an MMORPG. Yeah. Not, it's not just like one. It literally is one. It is a massive multiplayer online role-playing game. If you just take Twitter, for example, it's a massive online environment in which you create a character and that character is based on you but isn't actually you. It is a representation of you composed of little segments of information and behavior that you choose to add to that profile of that version of you. It's a character you create interacting with millions more who are doing the same thing, playing roles of a character they've created. And some players are casual and they don't play very much and they don't play the role very consistently. They just pop in and out. Others are power players and kind of addicts of the game. They play Mm -hmm. it all the time. Sometimes these players form loose teams and go out and fight oppositely aligned enemy players in the virtual space. I I think Twitter really does work in a lot of ways kind of like one of these games, like World of Warcraft or something, except the character creation is just less constrained by the fantasy environment of the game. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I feel like we could really – we could go wild with that concept, discussing how social media changes who we are. Yeah, but I mean I think on this model, you have to wonder about the feedback loop of how the, the character you create on social media – feeds back into who you actually are and how that changes the way you play your character online. It creates some kind of self-sustaining feedback loop, but in what what drives that loop and in what direction does it go? Here's one more scary thought. Uh, so in all of this, we invoke the mythic Proteus and seemingly, you know, it's just meant to refer to the idea of changing forms. Right. Uh, and I, I don't think there's actually more to it than that. But if we're to have fun with the concept, let's not forget that Proteus also had that gift of unerring prophecy. That's oh, no. <laughs> uh, so, so not, not only would he prophesize the future, but his, his visions were absolute. They were, they were unquestionable. So if forced to, he can tell you who you are, who you will be, what you will do. And I wonder if the danger or perhaps the promise in some cases here of the Proteus effect isn't that it will make you someone that you are not, but that it will let you become who you really are. Hmm. Well, it makes me ask the question, uh, who are we but what we are? What more could we do being what we are? You are what you do, even if it's online. Just do it. 
All right. On uh, on that note, uh, we want to remind you, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the podcast. You'll also find links out to our various social media accounts, such as Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us, the hosts of this show, to let us know a topic you'd like us to cover in the future or to give us feedback on this episode or any other or just to share some thoughts with us or say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.